This is a diet of Brussels. In this episode, you're going to hear uh, a recording from an event that I helped uh, organise with the UK in a changing Europe and the Centre for European Reform, which uh, we ran on the 12th of December 2016. Um, the uh, format is a series of uh, speakers. Uh, talking about uh, views from France, Germany and Central and Eastern Europe about Brexit and then a Q&A session. Uh, the voices you'll hear are firstly Charles Grant, who's the director of the Centre for European Reform, uh, introducing some people. Then you'll hear from uh, Stephen Wall, who used to be one of the UK's uh, most senior uh, diplomats working on the EU. Then you'll hear three uh, speakers talking about different countries. So uh, first of all, you will hear from Daniela Schwarzer, who is the director of the Research Institute at the German Council on Foreign Relations, talking about Germany. You'll hear about France from Vivien uh, Petso, who is the head of the Institut Français de Relations Internationales, so based in Brussels. Uh, but we'll talk about France. And then finally, uh, Henry Foy, who uh, has been the uh, FT Central European correspondent. Uh, then we'll move to the Q&A, and I hope that you find it useful. You can find out more about the event on the uh, UK and a Changing Europe uh, website, which is at ukandeu.ac.uk. So the first voice, as I said, is Charles Grant. Just before we start, we are live streaming this event, and if you want to watch it on, on the web, go to our hash, go to our uh, our Twitter address, which is at cr underscore london at cr underscore london, and uh, welcome to tweet about it. There is a hashtag for this event, which is hashtag eu twenty seven views. That's eu twenty seven views. Um, and and uh, let me introduce very briefly our excellent speakers. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Stephen Wall, who, as I'm sure you all know, was permanent representative to the EU and later was Tony Blair's uh, chief advisor on Europe. Um, then we have Daniela Schwarzer, who's come all the way from Berlin. Thank you, Daniela. Who, until recently, has been the German Marshall Fund and is now with the coming to the Dege Ape in Berlin as director of research. Uh, then we go to Vivian Curtiso, who runs the Brussels office of IFRI, the eminent French think tank. And finally, to Henry Foy, who's the Financial Times' East Europe correspondent based in Warsaw. Uh, I'm going to say nothing uh, except one opening uh, sentence, which is that what worries me personally about the coming negotiations in Article 50 is the disconnect between perceptions in London and perceptions elsewhere in the EU, including in Brussels. A lot of people in London uh, seem to, particularly in the political class and including some cabinet ministers, seem to believe that Britain's in a very strong position and if our partners don't give us a great deal, they'll suffer horribly and soon regret it and come begging, begging uh, for our forgiveness. That's not how it looks in uh, Paris, Berlin, Brussels or probably Warsaw, as far as I've been in Warsaw recently as far as I'm concerned and that disconnect worries me. My own personal view is that Britain's in quite a weak position because of the way Article 50 was written by the gentleman who just entered the room. Uh, Britain's in quite a weak position and therefore we need a lot of goodwill from our partners in order to get a good deal and I'm not sure everybody in London understands the need to generate that goodwill. But that's enough from me. 
Stephen, uh, turning first to you, um, how does it look as a former EU negotiator who's, who's battled for, for and batted for Britain in Europe? What's your current take on things? Uh, first of all, I think I, I've, got one, I've, got, I've got what George Bush Senior used to call one of these fairy guys, but it doesn't seem to be attached to anything. So <laughs> I think I'm microphone free. Um, uh, no, you, you need to borrow my one. I'll use that. Um, just very briefly, ready for openers. Um, you have a, we have a government here which, rightly, is under pressure by, from Parliament to set out its negotiating position before the invocation of Article 50. And yet you can see from every utterance that it's virtually impossible for it to do so, for some of the reasons that Charles has just mentioned. Um, but also because there are some, I'm told in number 10, who regret that the economy hasn't shown more signs of strain already because that would inject more realism uh, into the situation. When David Davis suggested that maybe we might make a financial contribution uh, in order to secure continued access to the single market, uh, the next thing we saw was Boris Johnson wriggling uh, on the Andrew Marr programme to avoid uh, uh, affirming that. David, the furthest David Davis could go, according to one press report in the last week, talking to one of the banks, to talk about a transition period, was to say, well, he might be kind to uh, our partners. This is a government, which we all know is uh, divided, and my own view is that the more it is obliged now to set out what is called a strategy, but at the very least would be negotiating uh, objectives, the greater the risk further down the road of uh, a train wreck. Because two things have to happen at least. One is greater realism uh, in terms of our own politics, and that will only come with the experience of uh, uh, economic pain, which undoubtedly we will have over uh, the next year or two. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, what will happen in the rest of the European Union uh, in the meantime. So to me, that points to uh, an Article 50 invocation, which would be as minimalist as possible. Because the more we put into it, the greater the reaction there will be from our partners and the greater the risk that things will be said and conditions will be placed, uh, which make a later serious negotiation in a year or so's time uh, very difficult. Because, of course, as we all know, uh, the situation within the European uh, Union uh, is one which is going to be dominated by uh, elections over the next year. Uh, the chances are that Gert Wilders will not be the next Prime Minister of the Netherlands, but there is a pretty good chance that he will have more votes and more seats than any uh, other party. There's a pretty good chance that Monsieur Fillon will be the next president of France. But the interesting and depressing thing is that the French malaise uh, means that on the left, they cannot reach agreement on a single candidate who might prevent Marine Le Pen from going through uh, to the second round. And if you look at the manifesto that Monsieur Fillon has published, uh, there's uh, a lot in it, which in terms of the future of the European Union, uh, particularly on uh, trade and economic matters, is a very far cry from the kind of Europe we sought to create uh, over the last few years. And when it comes to Russia, Russia is deemed to be uh, France's traditional uh, ally. So all of that is uh, in flux. Angela Merkel may well be the next Chancellor of Germany, but she's weakened. In the meantime, it's very interesting to see what's going on uh, in Germany. They are, it seems to me, 
uh, imposing conditions on migrants, which go far beyond anything that David Cameron sought to argue for. So we will go into, nego into a negotiation in which the four freedoms will be asserted, uh, but at the end of the two-year period, the four freedoms uh, may not look quite as like, as in practice, quite as like as they do now. All of that means that we have to have a procedure which doesn't, doesn't lead to a train crash very early on, uh, and which enables a serious negotiation uh, to happen uh, in about a year's time. Now, Charles mentioned the institutions. You have the classic situation where the council and the commission are at loggerheads. There is a suggestion that the commission negotiating team, I mean, the procedure will be that the commission are given a mandate by the heads of government, they will conduct the negotiations, they will get directives from time to time uh, from the heads of government, they will be answerable on a continuing basis through the General Affairs Council, and there will be a committee, a committee of committee of permanent representatives doing the day-to-day -day stuff. It's been wisely suggested that somebody from the Council Secretariat should be attached to the Commission negotiating team. Uh, this uh, has provoked disagree a disagreement uh, in Brussels between Mr. Juncker, who would like it to happen, and Mr. Selma, who doesn't want it to happen. This disagreement has to be resolved, and guess who is going to resolve it? The heads of government. The European Council will resolve this uh, issue. On the other side of the street, uh, the European Parliament are demanding that they are full participants in the negotiations. They won't get that, but Monsieur Barnier has promised that he will report to them, to the European Parliament, before and after each negotiating session. So even if this is done to the Conference of Presidents rather than anybody else, it seems to me that there is a real <coughs> risk that this uh, negotiation will be uh, conducted in the full uh, glare of, uh, of, the public, uh, of the public eye. So, we have to try and get through this period, and without, obviously member states have different, uh, different and not necessarily you know, very uh, obvious uh, interests. I mean, the Spaniards would sign up tomorrow for a declaration affirming the rights of UK citizens. Equally, of course, their central preoccupation is uh, what happens over, uh, over Gibraltar. As far as the East and Central Europeans are concerned, of course, uh, the issue of freedom of movement will be very important, but even more important at the moment in their minds is who is going to fill the budget void uh, when Britain is no longer contributing to the budget. Uh, there's an opportunity for Britain, but the idea that at present the British government could make some kind of move on that front is clearly uh, inconceivable. Uh, in 18 months' time, it might look uh, very different. So it seems to me that the only hope of this thing uh, um, going in a reasonably orderly fashion is to try and see how the thing might be uh, divided up. There are some things which certainly initially will be off limits, as it were. Our partners will reaffirm what they said on the 27th of June last year. That will be the framework in which uh, they will uh, negotiate. Equally, however, it might be agreed fairly early on, and I mean, when I say early on, I mean beyond the discussion about leaving, which won't start until uh, June uh, after the French uh, elections, it might be possible to say, well, there are a number of things where at least we should discuss the future uh, possible cooperation, continuing with uh, Erasmus, continuing with um, European Research Programme collaboration, foreign policy and defence. And then there is the difficult bit, which is uh, the bit in the, in, the, in the middle, as it were. 
Now, in Brussels, the people, serious people, are thinking about uh, how you might organize a transition uh, period such that even if we leave in two years' time, uh, we would still have, uh, there would still be tariff-free trade during a period, people are talking about just four years, uh, in which uh, a free trade agreement would be negotiated. Now, at the moment, uh, the chances of uh, free trade in, in financial services being included uh, in that don't look very high. But I think there's the beginning of a realization among some serious people that actually damage to the City of London would not be massively to the advantage of Paris or Frankfurt, but would be massively to the advantage uh, of New York. So all this is to play for, which is one reason it seems to me why we have, you know, we have to play this, play this long. We have to live uh, with uncertainty, because the real game will be among heads of government at the end of the day. And we have to hope for a situation in which Merkel and Fillon, if it is he, and Theresa May can actually think about what is the shape of Europe? What can we, the big, still be the three big powers in Europe, do about the future management of our continent? Thank you. So we're, we're a bit short of microphones, but we'll make do. Um, I turn next to Daniela. How does it look from Berlin, Daniela? Thank you very much, Charles. Thanks for having me here today. Um, well, I suppose Germany was among those countries who really didn't want a Brexit vote to happen on the 23rd of June last year. Can you hear me all right, microphone? It doesn't work? I'm not, is it? Can, sorry, can you check it switched on? Okay. So, we'll, Let me, we'll use this one. So, Germany was definitely among those countries who wished for a Remain vote on the 23rd of, of June last year. Uh, this year, sorry. Um, and the government, in my perspective, tried to be very helpful in negotiating the possible deal for the UK if Britain had decided to remain. So, the microphone um, doesn't seem not to be. Not working still. And I think the, the, the attitude in Berlin has not changed with regards to the assessment whether it's good to have the UK as a full member of the European Union or not. That is, that is very clear from the, from the perspective in Berlin. And one of the interesting phenomena was really that after the vote, um, after the <coughs> referendum, there was quite a long time where policymakers and journalists and think tankers alike thought that the UK would look for a way to exit from Brexit. And that was really going on for a long time while in the UK it was clear, very clear that this was going towards, towards Brexit. And here we had one of those elements that Charles mentioned very different perceptions on, on both sides of the channel. Um, right now, I would say the government's main concern, if I read what I hear or see well, is to keep the European Union together. And obviously, that has strong implications for the way um, decision makers think about Brexit. Because a Brexit that looks like a successful model is something that other countries may find interesting and may thrive for as well. And the interest in Berlin, in my view, is first of all to prevent any other country going down that lane. Secondly, to improve the functioning of the European Union with all the difficulties attached to that, and we may come to that at some point. Um, 
Yes, and then and then thirdly, really to figure out what is what is politically feasible in a context where there are many drivers of dis disintegration, and Brexit is is one of them, really successful or not. I think in any case, the fact that negotiations will be open next spring will change something pretty fundamental in the European Union, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that another country chooses to do the same soon, but it kind of relativizes the whole notion of being a full member means being there, staying there, deepening, and so on. So in my perspective, and that's, that's sort of my own view of, of what we are heading for, we are moving towards a European Union which will be more differentiated internally, and I think that will run through two developments. One is a deepening of the core, because I don't believe that the Eurozone at this point has a sustainable setup, so more will need to be done to hold it together if that's a political choice that is being made. It's also possible that a different choice is being made. Um, and then secondly, that some countries will choose to loosen their relationship with Europe, and that can happen in very informal ways. It can just be a, a uh, increasing sort of political uh, a retreat or a, a changing attitude towards Europe, which will materialize, obviously, in particular, in those areas where, where governments uh, still play a very strong role in European policymaking. I do, I do believe that the German attitude to the benefits of European integration has not changed. Um, and that's why I'm saying the main purpose is to keep the EU together. And it does perceive that its own role is, is crucially important here. And that, as has been discussed many, many times, in particular since 2010, when, when the euro crisis erupted in the form of a banking and sovereign debt crisis, in particular in Greece and other countries, Germany really moved to center stage and still is not at ease with this position. At the same time, while a lot of attention goes to Germany, its leadership capacities are very clearly limited. Just to give one example, um, Germany didn't get it its way in the migration crisis, and that clearly shows that it doesn't have the leverage, it really depends on the policy area, it really depends on whether it is in a veto player position or whether it asks something of others. Um, and so um, this is something that's very clearly perceived in, in Berlin, and, and there's, I, I perceive no intention to, uh, that Berlin really wants to further strengthen its role, rather it wants to work with partners, and that's why the French elections are, <coughs> are so crucial. Um, the uh, election of, of Donald Trump to be the, the next U.S. president did matter, obviously, to this role that Germany may potentially play in the future, but also to the way Berlin looks at Brexit. Um, obviously, we are here speculating, but there is a scenario that, that would consist in a revival of a special relationship between the UK and London. And from my perspective, I would say that this would be a very difficult thing for continental Europe to deal with if it came to a quick move of the Trump administration to offer some kind of trade deal, if uh, there was a stronger commitment for a transatlantic cooperation that goes deeper than the cooperation that, that exists anyway in, in the framework of NATO on security and defense matters, Obviously, that could, on the one hand, um, reinforce that perception, Charles, which you mentioned, that London is in a very strong negotiation position. And it would also change 
the perceptions in Berlin, what is actually, uh, what is actually at stake in those negotiations. Um, Stephen, you, you refer to uh, the EU's uh, statement on how uh, the negotiation practices, <coughs> process will evolve. And the view one gets in Berlin is exactly that. It will stick to first negotiating Brexit and then looking at all other issues afterwards. But I do believe that potentially the change of leadership in Washington and the degree of not knowing where NATO, um, I would say very broadly the Western uh, liberal order will go on a very large scale, that may actually change the strategic context for the Brexit negotiations. And I do believe, I'm not saying that I've heard anyone who is in an official position in Berlin, it's my own view, <coughs> I do believe that this will change the assessment of what is the right order of things. If we really speak about a challenging of our, our global order at this point, not only because of the Trump election, but, but in very general terms for very many different uh, vantage points, then I do believe that the overarching interest at some point should be that we have a very close relationship with the UK and Brexit then is one variable of this. But we have to look at this from a very strategic perspective. And this view obviously is, is not in sync with this rather formal view of saying, okay, first we, we negotiate uh, the UK out of the system, which is essentially obviously a question of what kind of model does the, the UK want to achieve, what is uh, the EU ready to offer, and then it's an obviously very tricky legal and political maneuver. But, but I do believe that if the trends we currently perceive in terms of challenging uh, a bigger, the bigger picture, um, that the Brexit question will be situated in more strategic terms and there will be a, a bigger openness to actually worry about the relationship rather than worrying about Brexit. I think what you're saying, Daniela, is that um, some of the hardline Eurosceptics in this country may be right if they think that the election of Trump puts them in a stronger position. That's kind of what I interpret you to be saying in certain ways. Well, it, can I yeah. it depends on whether President Trump will do what candidate Trump said, and we simply don't know that. Yeah. But I do believe that they interpret it their way, um, and that uh, the EU will have to react to that, because we simply don't know. And as I said, it's not only the Trump election that should make us think in very strategic terms how important the relationship, not only between Germany and the UK, but between continental Europe and the UK will be. It, in my view, the Trump election triggers this, in a, so, or accelerates this, but it, it doesn't create that situation where I do believe we have a huge interest to think more strategically than we may currently be doing. Vivian, how does it look from Brussels, where you work in Paris, where, where you, your, your alma mater is, where your headquarters is? Got well, I'll try the microphone. Oh, is, it, yes, it is, it, is, it, is it working? Yeah. Yes, wonderful. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak mo mostly about the French, actually, rather than, than Brussels, but I'm happy to talk about Brussels as well. Uh, I'll start with a quote, which I, I, I'm sure some, some are familiar with. <coughs> Tired of the fog, try the frogs, uh, which, uh, which some of you may know because this is a <coughs> campaign in, in, uh, in La Défense, the financial uh, center in Paris, to try to attract uh, uh, UK-based 
um, businesses, especially obviously financial services, uh, to, to, to leave London uh, to come to Paris. But I'll, I'll come back to that in a, in, in a second. Uh, but that gives you a taste of how the French uh, see this whole debate. Um, I, 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 in, I'll separate my, 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 my talk in, in, um, in, in two main sections. One is move on and the, the second is move in. Um, so this, the first one is move on. The French have moved on from the, the, Brexit, the, the Brexit votes. The French, I mean, they were, they were asked the, the 27 other member states um, willing to keep the UK in, <coughs> but, uh, but as, uh, as, as, as was pretty much envisaged, um, there wasn't a lot of love, lost love when the UK decided to vote to leave. Um, so all the messages that you've got from, uh, from the French uh, administration, be it the Elysee or the French government or uh, non-official, uh, is pretty much the same. British Brexit means Brexit. Um, I think that the French have been the most adamant uh, to, 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 to make that very clear at the European level. Uh, fundamentally, uh, what's at stake is pretty much what's, what Daniela talked about for, for, for Germany. It's the unity of the European Union. The fear is that, um, and it's been, it's been very well expressed by, um, by François Hollande in early October, the fear is that basically if there isn't a hard Brexit, some other member state can be, can be tempted. Uh, and this is something that is impossible uh, to fathom. Uh, the underlying assumption is that uh, if, if there isn't a hard Brexit, it can actually um, boost the Front National in France. And as you all know, uh, we have uh, elections next year, both presidential elections and uh, parliamentary elections. Um, so any, any attempt uh, to, to to, uh, to, to, to keep the, the Front National at a low level is, is more than welcome. Um, so, so, and François Hollande has said, there must be a risk, there must be a price. Um, otherwise, we will be in negotiations that will not end, and I'm quoting, uh, and inevitably will have economic and human consequences. Um, so it shouldn't be a cost-free Brexit, basically. So the two questions uh, when, 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 when this, is, uh, this is on the table is one, why such a firm position? And the second question is, can it change? Um, if we look at the first one, why such a position? Uh, in a word, France has always been, uh, has always had difficulty swallowing the UK's special regime within the European Union. Um, so this is not new. Um, moreover, uh, France has repeatedly thought of Brexit not so much to, to try to turn Brexit not so much as a crisis, but as an opportunity. Um, and this is this. This has been very clear from, from, from early on, even before the Brexit vote, actually. Um, so this is, there, there's, and this is where, wherever you go, wherever you talk to, and wherever you speak with in, in Paris or, or outside, you'll have the same message. There is a consensus on that. Um, that basically the, the, the EU needs to change, and that Brexit may actually offer an opportunity to open a debate on uh, the future of the EU. Uh, which may sound a bit, uh, a bit, a bit, a bit too much uh, to a certain extent, but this is this is something that is very present in the French debate. The solutions may vary, in the, obviously, but uh, but uh, but this is quite clear. Um, the, the reason is that France has been weakened in the with the economic crisis. Uh, the economic credibility of France has clearly been weakened. This is no surprise. But in its intellectual and forward-looking. Uh, clout remains relatively intact within the EU. So France knows that and they want to take advantage of that. 
Um, so there is p possibly a chance for France to regain influence within the EU by initiating uh, a strategic debate um, at, the, at, the, at the European level. Um, and, it's, and some of you may have seen this, uh, Manuel Valls, when he was still Prime Minister, so in uh, early October, um, he published a, a, an op-ed in the Financial Times, and he reflected this, this really clearly. He said that Brexit pushes the EU to rethink the European integration. Um, so the consequences uh, that's, uh, the, cons the, the consequences are that Brexit has quickly become a secondary issue for the French. Uh, it's important to negotiate uh, Brexit as smoothly as possible and as quickly as possible. Uh, but, the, the, but it will always be in the background of a much more important and much more uh, high-priority debate for the French, which is a strategic <coughs> reflection on the future of the EU. Even though the thinking process is very much incoherent, uh, in Kuwait, uh, and the calendar is unlikely to get clear before the end of 2017, so after the, all the elections in 2017. <coughs> um, so th there, is, there is a frustration uh, now in France, very visible. Um, there is a frustration across the board that one, um, Article 50 should be triggered uh, sooner rather than later, um, so that the negotiations can, uh, can get started. And seconds, it will annoy everyone on all sides, except maybe on the far right, uh, if Article 50 were triggered, let's say, in April, or you know, at right in at the very end of the presidential campaign, uh, because that can that can really change the, the dynamic of the, the the campaign. And this is something that uh, every every uh, every candidate, maybe not Marine Le Pen, wants to avoid. Can can this position change? It's hard to say at this stage. Uh, for, for three reasons. <coughs> One is that it depends who is elected in France uh, next year. Uh, if Fillon is elected, um, which is a possibility, um, he would likely have a similar tough position um, on, the, on the UK. Uh, I mean, he's giving some speeches and some interviews where he's hinted at the fact that um, uh, Brexit should, 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 should happen quickly uh, and that Brexit means Brexit, hard Brexit. I mean, whatever, whatever happens, it should be quick and it should be tough. Second reason why uh, it could change, but it, it's hard to say at this stage, is it's depe it depends on the evolution of the discussions at the, the EU 27, so the remaining member states, but I would say even within the Eurozone. Um, because for France, the future of the EU is within the Eurozone, not within the single market. Um, so the more intense and wide-ranging the discussions are within the Eurozone, the more France may feel that there is no interest to spend too much time on the UK case. Um, is it good or bad? It could be good if the Brits are crafty enough uh, to devise a deal that doesn't appear that doesn't appear too good for them. Um, um, in many respects, uh, Brexit is clearly a nuisance for, for for the French in the in, on the EU agenda. But it also means that the EU debate and the UK debate can take place in parallel and from time to time may collide. And on freedom of movement, for instance, even though the French are very clear that uh, freedom of movement and the access to the single market are, um, are, are, are one, um, are, are go hand in hand, uh, it's possible that down the line, after some negotiations, this uh, sacrosanct link may actually be, uh, fade away a little bit. The third reason is that it depends on how much France can benefit from the Brexit. Um, the Franco-British trade relationship is very important for France. Um, well, I, I mean, the, it's, it's, 
it's clear that the services sector want to benefit from Brexit, and I'll talk, I'll talk about that very quickly in a, in a second. Uh, but on the goods side, they can lose out, especially for fine food and wine and luxury products, um, especially if, if there are trade barriers after, after, uh, after Brexit. But um, there, is, there is a willingness for, for the French to appear very tough now, so that at least they can, they can set a very tough line and attract uh, some businesses that may be very concerned about Brexit, may be very concerned about uncertainty, and may feel that they should move earlier rather than, uh, than later. Um, and and, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll close on that. Um, the French, because this is pro probably the most interesting almost, the French have been extremely uh, active on, uh, on ripping the benefits of Brexit and attracting businesses, uh, foreign businesses, UK-based businesses in Paris. This has been visible in two main fields. One is that many French cities have been uh, candidates for um, uh, agencies that are based in, uh, in London, so for the U uh, European Banking Authority. Paris is a candidate, not the only one, but still. Um, and for the European Medicines Agency, you have three cities. Can, uh, can, uh, so Lyon, Strasbourg, and Lille are campaigning to, to, to host the European Medicines Agency. Um, the, second, the second field where France is, is very active is to attract UK-based financial institutions, as I was saying. Um, and, and, and there, the, the French have been very resourceful. So the, the French financial regulators announced early September um, that they were, they were spinning up their, their procedures for financial institutions to set foot in France, and even allow documents to be, uh, to be completed in English. Um, so um, and and you've already you've already had messages sent by the, May, the, the Paris mayor's office and Michel Sapin, the financial the, the finance minister, um, that they are in touch with banks uh, concerned about Brexit uh, that may want to move some uh, some staff uh, in Paris, not the, the the whole operations, but at least some some uh, some in Paris. And you already have some some uh, some uh, lobbyists in Paris campaigning for a special status for bankers, foreign bankers in Paris, so that they can pay less taxes, um, so, that, uh, they can, uh, so that Paris can attract uh, foreign businesses in Paris. It's unlikely to happen. Um, and the very last uh, point is, yes, very last point is on, and this is the big bet uh, for Paris, is the FinTech. Um, Paris and London have been campaigning to be the, the European leader for, uh, in terms of the FinTech, and. Um, and Paris is well positioned to attract a lot of fintech startups that are very worried uh, about Brexit, uh, both in terms of having access to the European passports and having access to investors as well uh, that may be concerned to invest in the UK. I'll, 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 close, I'll close here, but many things to say, but this time is running out. Thank you very much, Vivian. Um, turning now to Henry, uh, sitting in Warsaw, of course, the the, the Central European countries are very divided on issues like how to handle Russia, but they're probably, I would guess they're a bit more united on their approach to Brexit. They regret it, but don't want to compromise on free movement. Yeah, right? It's actually really quite complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you have to bear with me. I've got four countries to talk about, not just one. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, before the referendum and in the process that Cameron went through travelling around Europe, that was the case. These countries were united on... on on many, many fronts. Since the, the referendum, that's that's really changed. This microphone is not working? All right, fine. Um, the best way for me to describe Central Europe's reaction to Brexit is, is schizophrenic. I mean, they, they really are very confused uh, between themselves and also internally on, 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 on what to do. They 
part of them love it, part of them hate it, some of them don't like the other people liking it. It's, it's really very confusing. <laughs> and mainly because there's a real new political current in the region that is confusing and blurring what were considered previously very concrete uh, uh, positions and quite obvious national interests and approaches. And this is this rising Euroscepticism, rising illiberalism, and, and, and mild nationalism in Central Europe. Um, this isn't a debate on those topics. You'll just have to bear with me and, 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 and trust me. So it's, uh, as a whole, I mean, it really rejects sweeping statements. But sadly, we all have to work in an environment where those where those where those are, are accepted. But all of them, all four, have large migrant populations in the UK, which was a, a huge a huge issue for for all the, prime, the four prime ministers. They all enjoy the fruits of the four movements very much. Four freedoms. My apologies. Trade and capital, and also they all saw the UK as a, as a major ally. Uh, not just politically uh, and in terms of their, its clout in the European Council, the four Visegrad countries, that's Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Hungary, all saw them as the UK as something as a bulwark against the Germans and the French and federalism and the Eurozone. Um, and of course for Poland, defence is a real key issue and it's something that comes up in every conversation you have with a Polish minister. It's about defence and it's about NATO. Uh, Russia is never far from their minds and they see Britain as a key reason why Putin is still... Uh, sort of not as bad as he may well be. Um, and finally, of course, EU funds. I mean, this is something we shouldn't, shouldn't sort of pass by. Poland is a recipient of 104 billion euros in EU funds between 2014 and 2021. This is building huge amounts of roads, huge amounts of airports, lots and lots of infrastructure, lots of money for farmers. This is a real key issue uh, for Warsaw. Um, since, since the referendum, that has really uh, fractured, uh, I, I would say. And essentially, it's because we've heard uh, from, from some of the speakers about elections coming up this year and, and other elections across Europe. The elections already happened in Central Europe. That's something to bear in mind. The, the anti-establishment parties are already in power. Viktor Orban's been in power for a long time now. Law and Justice is, is really flexing its muscles after a year in power in Warsaw. The Czechs are very worried about Andrei Babish and what he may bring. And Robert Fico uh, essentially lost an election this year but managed to hold on to power. But the parliament he looks after is far more right-wing than it was before. Um, there are 13 seats in the Slovak parliament held by a neo-Nazi group, an actual avowed neo-Nazi group. I mean, this is a, a serious swing in, in Central Europe, which is affecting the way they see um, Brexit. Since the referendum, Poland and Hungary have come out as two of the biggest cheerleaders of this newfound uh, Euroscepticism being shown on the European stage. They've also become two of the most outspoken critics of the Commission and essentially have said this is all the Commission's fault. You know, Mr. Farage is only saying what everyone in Europe thinks and it's all Mr. Juncker's fault. They've called for treaty change. And just to show the, the sense of confusion here, I mean, Jarosław Kaczynski, who is the eminence Greece of Polish politics, he's an MP, but he runs the entire country, and Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, uh, spoke at a meeting I was at in the mountains of Poland uh, this summer, where they actively encouraged and cheered the vote as a sign of great national pride in Britain. These are two leaders who beforehand were campaigning vigorously for Brexit not to happen. Viktor Orban even took out an advert, I believe, in the Daily Mirror or perhaps Daily Express, paid for with Hungary, Hungarian taxpayer money, calling for people to vote Remain. And then a month later, he was saying what a great result it was that they voted um, Brexit. Of course, also, they're, they're sort of completely avoiding the topic that for many voters in the UK, this was, this was a vote against immigration. This was a vote <laughs> against the sort of the, from Central Europeans coming to, to Britain. And so there's this real sort of confused position, uh, which is actually quite similar to their position towards Trump, but that's another, another, another debate. Um, at, the, at the same time, you have Robert Fico, who is the Prime Minister of Slovakia, who is 
holding the current rotating presidency of the EU, and so is on very, very good behaviour, and is very pro-EU over the last six months. He has come out uh, uh, very on the line. He's actually, in an interview with me, straight after the Bratislava summit, said that he thought the polls had gone way too far calling for treaty change, saying that Viktor Orban was, was uh, you know, wide of the mark, that, that we shouldn't react too much to this, we should try and keep the European Union together. He's a Eurozone member as well, which makes him far more integrated with the rest of Europe than the other three countries. And on the other side, the Czechs are incredibly worried about what this means uh, for them if there is a tightening of the core. They're not inside the Eurozone. When I saw the, the Czech foreign minister about a month after Brexit, all he talked about was going to Berlin, making sure that that relationship was strong. Because they all used to rely on the Poles as their way into Central Europe, uh, their way into Western Europe. It was Tusk and Merkel, and that news would filter back down into Central Europe. The Czechs now are incredibly worried that that breakdown in, in, in relations between Warsaw and Brussels means they're sort of on the edge and seen as the, the guys on the outside, so they want to make sure that they're in with the, the, the German crew in the centre, if you like. So since then, the Poles have sort of positioned themselves as a country that can help Britain. Uh, they brought five or six ministers to London last week for very high-level negotiations that were splashed all over the papers in London, and Warsaw is a sign of how important Poland was in this role and taking on a role supporting the British government. A lot of that is about defence, but a lot of it is also about Euroscepticism. This is the, the rise of law and justice has changed everything. I mean, before you would see Poland, if Brexit had happened three years ago, Poland would be firmly in the, in my opinion, firmly in the pro Brussels camp. You know, this is <coughs> keeping the EU together, maintaining the structural funds, maintaining the four freedoms would be absolutely the red line for Poland. Now it's very different. Over the last five years, they've become a, a very valued and rightfully so powerful member in Brussels. They're a member of the Big Six. Donald Tusk is the, is the council president. And they're sort of throwing the weight around a lot more. And they think that they have a role to play in making sure Britain gets some of the things it needs. Now, I'm sure uh, members of the audience have heard this too, sort of rumors and gossip and discussions and from some ministers and officials that they might be willing to compromise on freedom of movement um, for the Brits. Personally, I think this is very unlikely that they'd agree to any kind of hard restrictions on migration. It would be politically incredibly unpalatable back home. But I do think the, that especially the Hungarians and the Poles will be willing to offer certain concessions to the Brits, or at least be batting on their side, if you like, in Brussels to make sure that Britain remains some kind of a player in, in, in Europe. They really do fear, a, a, whether it's imagined or real, this Franco-German domination of the, of the bloc making everybody play by their rules. And in the spirit of what they call Euro-realism, which essentially means giving more power to national parliaments, Brexit's a fantastic weapon for them to, to wield. And something that you hear a lot in Warsaw is that while Juncker and, and others like to talk about Brexit being a unanimous decision amongst the 27, well, that cuts both ways. And if you have Poland and Hungary and possibly Slovakia lining up against the bigger countries to say, no, we think you've been too harsh on Britain, we think you, you're showing this overburdening this overzealous wielding of power in Brussels that we keep accusing you of, they may well sort of to, to, to stick Brussels in the eye, so to speak, try to, to get more concessions um, for Britain. This Polish-UK relationship, to, to make it clear, began way before Brexit. When the new government came in, they made this big foreign policy speech saying Britain will be our key partner. And a few opposition members were like, aren't they voting to leave in six months? <laughs> why, why are you sort of joining with them. I mean, so, so to sum up, I mean, it, it really, their, their position in the, in the discussions will boil down to how much they're willing to hurt the EU 
in as part of a wider push here to try to remove powers from Brussels, to try to limit the, the, the power of the Commission, to try to blunt the force of Brussels as it is at the moment. They, they, there's a real feeling in Warsaw that they are on the right side, and Brexit shows that. And while they will never come out in favor of the likes of, of, of Marine Le Pen because of her, her pro-Putin ties, um, they, 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 they feel they're on the right side of history with this wave, and they want to capitalize on it. And if Brexit is a tool in which to do that, and to weaken the Commission, and weaken Brussels, as it is at the moment, then they will use it. Thank you very much. Um, now, we've, let's go to some comments from the floor. Um, we only have two working microphones, so I think, Sophie, can you use this big microphone to give it to people who want to ask questions at the floor? And we'll share Vivian's microphone, which does work on the panel. So, uh, take this one. I'll, I'll share this one. Okay, I'll go first to turn to David Hannay um, on, on the left. Okay. Uh, David Hannay, House of Lords. Uh, I'd like to ask the panel to comment a little bit more. I think all, several of you. If you hold the mic a bit closer, David, sorry. Several of you, particularly Stephen, uh, did refer to it, but I'd like to hear a little bit more from the panel about the issue of concurrent versus consecutive uh, negotiations, uh, because I think that's going to become a very important issue. I'd like to hear you uh, construe Article 50 to show whether you, how you understand the phrase that the Article 50 outcome has got to take account of the relationship, the future relationship of Europe with the uh, UK. Uh, and I'd like to, that would be useful. Secondly, could I just um, ask Stephen perhaps to comment a little bit more, uh, and others too, on his idea that the triggering message should be very simple and devoid of any serious content. Uh, I can understand that perfectly well from the point of view of the big issue of trade versus migration. Uh, but surely the other issues which he mentioned, and he didn't mention justice and home affairs, though it is an extremely important issue of internal security, but justice and home affairs, foreign security policy, uh, science cooperation, these are areas where surely if the British government made it clear from the outset that it wanted a very close relationship, uh, external one, with the EU, that would on the whole be beneficial, I would have thought, to the negotiations, even if ducking for the moment, resolving the trade versus migration issue is probably the wisest thing too. Okay, let's take a few more points from the floor before we come back to the panel. Steve Irvin here from the New York Times. Hello, thanks very much. Um, I'll try to swallow the microphone. Um, Daniela talked a little bit about this, um, but we can speculate about Trump. It's quite early to do that. But we don't have to speculate about Russia. And clearly, Russia um, is very active in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. I'd like to hear Henry talk more about that, both through propaganda, through social media. And it's, you know, people are listening. There's a kind of moral, somehow Putin manages to take this moral line in terms of defending Western moral values, Christian values, that works in Slovakia, places like that, that are very heavily Roman Catholic and have been separated from the world for a, a terribly long time. And we see that as part of the aversion to migrants as well as to Islam and so on. Um, and then, of course, there's the money issue, 
I mean, people are going to want to spend more on defense if we shut Trump up. Germany spends 1.2%, 1.1% of GDP on defense, um, and there's this hole in the budget, which, which you've raised about uh, Brexit, that seems to matter. Fillon seems to be very gaullist. I mean, you, you know, in the old days, you, you would draw a line between Washington and Moscow, and France would be two-thirds of the way with Washington and a third of the way with Russia. You could, on every issue, you could point it right there. Maybe we're returning to that place. So just this whole issue, I mean, there's this other challenge coming from the outside, um, and maybe it's not so far outside. Um, and so if, 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 if we could talk about that a bit, that would be great, thank you. Okay, let's go to Sir, Sir Andrew Khan, who's just here <coughs> in front of me. Daniela um, said that the issue of the future shape of the European Union, including the two, would be more important in many ways to some member states, probably France and Germany, than, than the relationship with Britain. But I haven't heard any interesting uh, ideas coming out, any constructive suggestions, any real debate happening about what changes there could be to EU 27 or indeed to the Eurozone. So it's easy enough to say that, but whilst there's been a huge amount of debate about what Brexit might actually mean, I've heard almost no debate about what a developed, better, reformed European, remain uh, leftover European Union would be. And I wonder what, what, what sort of ideas you think actually are floating around in the EU. Okay, um, let's come back to our panel before we take some more points. So, Steve, do you want to start off? Here's a. All right. okay. uh, thanks very much. Uh, my, my sense of the kind of concurrence um, uh, debate is that this is, this is still un, uh, unresolved. Um, and I think certainly within the Council Secretariat, they are thinking that of. of the negotiations begin with Brexit, but that um, certainly well within the two-year period, and probably fairly early on, that a discussion would start about the future uh, arrangement. That obviously has to be uh, based on people accepting that in the framework of does actually mean something, and as far as I can tell, that isn't necessarily a key uh, within the Commission or within the Member States, and it's partly for that reason that I was kind of suggesting that we should try and uh, avoid kind of provoking um, a kind of reaction from the word go. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm not obviously you have anything to do with this stuff, but in, in real terms, but um, it seems to me that there is a difference between what you kind of say formally in triggering Article 50 and what you might be saying behind the scenes uh, in terms of this kind of three basket approach, i.e., um, uh, you know, there are there are some things where you know, the position of the EU partners will be absolutely. Uh, clear and apparently no-go area for freedoms there will be areas all the ones you mentioned David where there is a common interest in actually resolving these amicably and then there's the most difficult bit in the middle which is around the uh, the trade relationship including including uh, services but I just I mean I think that you know if you want to get that established whether it's in, in, in an article 50 statement or not in my view would be preferably not um, that would be uh, a good way to go. I mean, I do think that, I mean, I do myself think that the big game here is, you know, apart from our own interest, is actually, you know, the future of the global order as we've, uh, uh, as we've known it. Uh, a friend of mine who's <coughs> more of 23 years old and at age 23 uh, chairs a government subcommittee on cybersecurity said to me months ago, 
you do realize, don't you, that the Russians are seeking to intervene technologically in order to influence the outcome of the American elections. And here it is confirmed uh, by, the C by the CIA. <coughs> I, I think that Trump's attitude, and Fionn when he came to power, attitude is deeply, deeply dangerous for our security. And there is a common interest in Europe. And, and we have been, Britain has been one of the stronger arguers in terms of a tough attitude to, to, uh, to Russia. It seems to me to be a really, uh, um, a really vital uh, issue. And people may think that we're going to get uh, some advantage from Trump. I don't know whether you saw a bit on YouTube a few weeks ago, a clip of a polar bear with, with a group of huskies. And one day, the polar bear is patting the husky on the head. The next day, it ended. And that seems to me to be a kind of analogy for, for Trump. This is a man who is, who is and will be uh, uh, unpredictable. And I don't think that unpredictability is going to make him a safe ally for the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Same is true for the EU without the UK, vis-a-vis -vis the US. Um, yes, uh, I think I gave my opinion already on the, on the broader framing of the negotiations, and I do believe that that will impact um, the sequence of things as the negotiations evolve. I think at the beginning there will, uh, I, I suppose, uh, the EU side will try to, to have a very clear start, saying it's about Brexit first, and then we, we go the three big issue areas. But I, I just believe, as I said earlier on, the strategic context is so dynamic at the moment and there's so much uncertainty out there that Europeans more generally really have to rethink who their allies <coughs> are and who's reliable. And I'm not trying to suggest the US are no longer an ally, but this degree of uncertainty that we are facing, I think will um, really change the perception of how important it is to have the UK as a very close partner on a number of issues. Um, Steve, thanks for, for coming back to, to the impact of, <coughs> of Russia again. I, I would agree with you that this is a challenge which goes to the EU's core. And um, there are more and more studies out which actually trace Russian influence in, within the EU and in sort of through through funding of, of parties and, and civil society actors, through their own media, the way they impact on other media. So I think that is very important. The Atlantic Council just published a study which is called Russian Trojan, Trojan Horses, which is, I think, very interesting. It looks at, um, I think, three country examples, Germany being one of them. Um, and then you have all the sort of the work that is being done on Russian propaganda within the EU, the, the EAS, the European External Action Service, with a regular newsletter which traces how Russia intervenes in debates. And then there's also the NATO Strengthening Center sitting in, in Riga, which I think does a lot to shape our understanding of the extent to which Russia already influences in a European debates. And we have to take that extremely seriously. Um, Yes, and that's one of the reasons why we have to very closely watch how governments and parliaments <coughs> position themselves on Russia and, and be sure we understand why they do that. And that's also why any sort of official position taken by any government within the EU at this point, be it on the big question of, of Russia-Ukraine, for instance, or on smaller issues that pertain to the relationship with Russia, are extremely important, both as elements of information but also as... Um, ways of signaling, you know, where where right and wrong are here, and I I do believe that that we have a big challenge to face here to to keep things correctly straight. 
Um, then the question on, on uh, well, if everyone is worried about having a better year, where are the suggestions? I, yes, I, I mean, th th this, I think, is, is um, it's, it's true that we don't have big visions out there at the moment where you can say, okay, the German government is working for that or the French government is working for that. Part of the reason is, of course, A, the electoral calendar, less than a year be before the general elections, this is not surprising that they haven't done that. But then there's also a, a problem that no one really believes that you can have a big change at the moment. So they don't want to push big ideas at a time where it seems completely unrealistic to do so. And yet, I feel that the awareness is growing that some things simply don't hold. And I think at the moment, there's a, there's a realization that incomplete integration is more dangerous than we had thought it is. This is true, obviously, for the Eurozone. We've had the proof. I mean, we've been on the edge several times since particularly 2010. Um, but it's also true for the whole issue of justice and home affairs, creating the Schengen area with free movement of people, but not providing for everything that should accompany this liberalization of movement within the framework of the EU, namely border controls, intelligence cooperation, a proper migration and asylum policy. So I think now the political realization is that if if those elements won't be added, then the system won't hold. Simply because part of the criticism that not only populist parties voice is actually not that wrong. I mean, there is a loss of control if you liberalize and, and integrate, but you don't <coughs> ensure that there is the governance capacity of the EU level. So um, I, I do believe that right now the reflection is what can we do without treaty change, sort of on the policy level and through the creation of instruments, and that is moving ahead. The Bratislava summit uh, shows a bit where the thinking is going. It's mainly on foreign and foreign security policy, and then uh, on uh, internal issues pertaining mostly to security. There's a little bit on economics and, and eurozone issues. Far not enough. Uh, but I think that's the way that it will work for the moment. And then there may come a point where a treaty change becomes an option, um, a, a politically uh, feasible option. And maybe, and that's what I meant with differentiation, we will see that something happens more on the Eurozone scale than for the EU than 27. Yeah, I think I'd like to leave it there. Sure. Um, on the concurrent consecutive, I think this is another example where, where Central Europe is completely divided. Uh, I think the Poles and the Hungarians are very clear that they quite like uh, con uh, concurrent. Uh, um, and you know, while the Polish government's media relations team leaves something to be desired, it was quite obvious from the discussions that were had here last week that Brexit was on the table, and no matter what people tried to say afterwards. Um, on the other hand, the Czechs and the Slovaks, in conversations uh, privately and publicly, have made it very clear that they're with the, the, the Juncker line, if you like, that these will be consecutive. Uh, now, whether that's Mr. Fizzo, um playing good cop because he is, holds the presidency, and that might, may, may well change in January, <coughs> and he may well swing back to a more Kuczynski or Van Star position, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. But no, the, the, the Czechs and the Slovaks have been very clear that there will be a, an exit procedure and then a, and then a renegotiation. On the sort of uh, on the Russia <coughs> question, it's it's a very it's a very very good point, and it's one that again Central Europe is very divided on. You have uh, Orban and Fico, so Hungary and Slovakia, 
quite co quite cozy with the Kremlin. Um, they get really nice gas deals. There's there's friendships there. There's big Russian companies operating out of those cities. That get good government to government contacts. Um, whereas the Poles uh, are perhaps the most uh, Russophobic uh, state in the in, in in the EU, if not the Baltic states. Uh, and and the Czechs sort of in between. Babish is seen as far more pro-Russian. Um, Milos Zeman, the president, is is, is vehemently uh, pro-Putin, though wields not a huge amount of power uh, other than rhetoric uh, and 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 embarrassment really for the for the Czech foreign ministry, who spend most of their time reminding people that he's not a president like the U.S. president. Uh, and what he says doesn't really. He's actually barred from any national security briefings, so uh, there's not actually a lot of knowledge. Of but but, but on, on a serious on a serious note. You know, defence is the big one for Central Europe, I think, and, and this is why the Poles have been very cosy with the Brits straight afterwards. They've also, uh, Trump confuses things, but they've also been very, very keen on stressing that uh, EU defence involves the US and involves NATO. Uh, they are conflicted on the idea of the EU army. They, they quite like the idea of more other, of other NATO states spending more. They're just not sure if they want their defence controlled by a French general. Um, uh, uh, and if they had a larger say in what was going on, I think they'd be far more in favour. On the on the point on uh, the what the EU looks like, um, quite ironically, uh, the Poles and the Hungarians, I think, uh, I mean, they haven't sketched out what their new treaty would look like under treaty change, and it's not really a political reality that it would ever happen. But what they want is for every country to have a relationship like Britain had before the referendum, which is opt outs on lots of issues, um, JHA freedoms, energy and environment freedoms control of more uh, sovereign rights, uh, but keeping the benefits of the, the, the freedom of, of, of capital, freedom of goods, and of course, uh, across subsidies across borders. Um, essentially a very, very loose EU where they get to call the shots on the things they like, and Brussels pays for other things. Um, I mean, it, it really is as cynical as that, uh, but they haven't really sketched out a, a full a full program of what they'd like. Um, at the moment, it's seen a little bit in Brussels of troublemaking, but there is definitely serious people in Warsaw who believe that they, are, they have these policies ready. Uh, to share with you, I had a conversation with a deputy prime minister in Poland recently, who I won't name because it was off the record, uh, but he said that he actually thinks structural funds are a bad idea, and if he was in charge, he'd get rid of them all, uh, because at the end of the day, they just allow the French and the Germans to dictate policy, and really they're sort of like charity payments. This is the kind of language that is circulating around the government in Warsaw, just to put it all in perspective in terms of what they'd like to see happen, a real pulling back of, of Brussels uh, power. Okay. Thank you. Well, um, thank you for the questions. On, the, on concurrent versus consecutive, I think the French have no idea. Um, I mean, to, to a large extent, it's, it's fairly similar to what Daniela said. The French would, would say, uh, will and, and are already saying, um, consecutive uh, negotiations. Uh, but once the negotiations start, it's just impossible not to talk about the relationship after Brexit. So, inevitably, there will be discussions about this, even though from a, from a, a, a principled point of view, uh, they'll say, uh, Brexit first and uh, the, the, the relationship, the future relationship afterwards. Um, but, but there are already signs that, that France could be sympathetic to keep the UK closed on internal security, for instance, on, uh, on CFSP. I mean, those are, those are issues that are being discussed at the very informal level, but at the formal official level, it's uh, consecutive, not concurrent. Um, but again, it can change, I think, in the negotiations. Um, on, on Russia, um, 
yes, your your rights of Fillon is, is very Gaullist in his uh, or Gaullian in his uh, in his <coughs> position. So as he doesn't perceive Russia as a threat, as a strategic risk or a challenge, uh, whatever I mean, however you want to call it. Um, the the main question I think is how much uh, his partners and here especially Angela Merkel can sway him uh, in his thinking. That's probably going to be one of the main topics of discussion in January uh, when uh, Merkel and Fillon meet, uh, because Merkel has already invited Fillon, even though it's just a candidate uh, in, in Berlin, to make sure that he understands that uh, it's important to have solidarity at the European level on Russia. Um, because Fillon's already said that if elected, um, he will want to lift the sanctions, uh, and that's, uh, that, that we've already gone too far in, in the escalation of the rhetoric with Russia. Um, but, but you have to understand that, and this is, there will be a strong pressure from, uh, from the parliament as well, if the French are coherent, uh, and if they elect Fillon, uh, they'll likely elect a right-wing uh, parliament, uh, right-wing Assemblée Nationale afterwards. Uh, and in the right-wing party, uh, so in Les Républicains, there is a, there is a strong Russophile tendency. Um, so it's not new, it's always been there. Uh, not necessarily pro-Putin, but at least a Russophile tendency. Which means that the French, the, the future French administration, if again Fillon is elected, uh, will want to uh, get warmer relationship with Moscow. Um, and 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 Henry has talked a lot about defense being uh, being a very important issue for the Central Europeans, and uh, and that Russia is not very far from their mind. France has been very keen on talking about European defense, but Russia is far from their minds. I mean, Russia is never part of the conversation where we talk about European defense. Never. Um, it's, it's not an issue at all. So it's, um, it, for, for the, the French will be very, and already, already quite ambivalent about Russia, and are likely to be more and more ambivalent, especially if you elected. On, um, on the, the, the <coughs> on deep uh, on on the debates at the European level, I I think it's a little bit unfair to say that there is nothing happening uh, um, at the European level on the future of the EU. Um, well, I'm, I'm not saying that the Bratislava process is uh, is a step in the right direction, but it's 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 the very <laughs> beginning of something. Um, obviously, we're very far away from a, co a coherent united position, but at least. There is a beginning of a debate in France, um, and and I, I've seen debates um, even in the, with the Netherlands. There is a lot of discussions, but not at the European level. So it happens. Uh, it takes place between France and Germany, between France and the Netherlands, between the six, even with, with, with individual right countries. So you have you have so you have a lot of discussions happening, but not at the European level on the future of the EU. Um, and the, the issues, yes, most, most of them take place, uh, I mean, uh, deal with internal security, defense, etc. But you have a lot on Eurozone as well, uh, institutional setup, uh, whether we should have Eurozone parliaments, um, how to strengthen the Eurogroup, um, things, that are, things that are really, really actually will, would demand a treaty change. And if you look at the French presidential election campaign, this is going to be not so much the main topic. But all candidates on the far right, on the right, on the left, on the far left, agree that there should be a European debate. It will not happen in 2017 because you have elections, but whoever the, the next French president is will push for a European debate, will push for a strategic debate, and 
which will inevitably result in a treaty change, not in 2018 or 2019, but there will be a, the start of a process in 2018 for sure. Just, just before we take more points from the floor, it's one footnote to what you said on treaty change, what Daniela said earlier. I was in the Netherlands not so long ago. If you talk to people in the Netherlands, and also in Ireland where I was not so long ago, about the prospect of the new treaty, they don't say not just for the next few years. They say never. Yeah. The Dutch government's position is there will not be a new EU treaty in the history of the European Union. Because if there was, there'd have to be a referendum in the Netherlands. And if there was, we, we know we could vote it down, and the Irish have a similar view. So I think not everybody accepts that there will be a new treaty. But it's interesting that both you and Daniel think that there will be. Um, now, who, I've got several people on my list already, but uh, gosh, a lot of names. I think let's, let's, okay. First on my list is the lady with glasses. Sorry, I can't see her face properly. The lady near the back with glasses. second slightly related question, there's also been talk of a massive exit bill, um, mm. 10 billion at one time, and I think the last, the last number was over 60 billion euros. Is, is that really feasible? Okay, there's a lady behind you, John, who's waving her hand. She could say who you are, please. Louise Radcliffe, can you hear me? Just to, I wanted to reinsert what you said, Charles, at the beginning of this meeting, I think it's very important. There are so many people here in London who <coughs> think that we have a much stronger bargaining position than we really do. And I was speaking just on Saturday with a bunch, funny enough, of, of bankers and people who work in finance who told me that everything's going to be just fine because Germany needs to sell us BMW cars. Yeah. How do you, and so Stephen, you touched on this, how do you, in a nutshell, because I've been using statistics and explaining the procedure and their eyes glaze over, in a nutshell, explain to them that it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, uh, Peter Witt. <coughs> Thank you very much. So Stephen spoke in the very beginning about um, the various actors on the Brussels scene. The Council, the Commission on behalf of the Council, and Parliament. And we have heard from the, uh, from the panel the rather confusing, conflicting, uh, in part contradicting attitudes of member states. How will this relate to the Brussels scene? Will you see a similar divergence of views, um, for example, amongst the 27 remaining uh, candidates uh, in, in the European Parliament. Okay, Stuart Wood. Thank you. Um, Donald Tusk in his speech, I think a couple of months ago, raised the possibility that at the end of Article 50, Britain would be given the chance to look in, uh, into the abyss and change its mind, or at least some revisiting of the deal. 
is that something in the capitals you live in that you think is a live option, or is that ship sailed? Okay, let's take one more on this one. Agatha Gostinska from the CER. Thank you very much. Um, several months ago, uh, House Rod's EU Select Committee uh, questioned David Davis about parliamentary scrutiny. And David Davis uh, when asked whether the British Parliament will have a similar scrutiny as the European Parliament in the international negotiations, David said yes, but well, I'm not sure what it really means. Uh, so I wanted to ask Sir Stephen Wall and Vivian, um, you know, people who have been following Parliament's role in international negotiations know that Parliament actually secured quite a lot uh, and ha has a say. Do you think it will be similar in, the, in, in this Brexit negotiations? And do you think the election of the new uh, president of the European Parliament will have an impact of what kind of role the European Parliament will play? Right, let's come back to our panel, um, uh, and perhaps please don't answer all the questions because we want to move on and give a lot of more time to people. So just pick out maybe you know one or two or three things that you've heard from one of them. Thank you. Um, I'll I'll start with the end. The role of the Parliament. Um, I think it's going to be limited. Um, they, 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 I'm sure that a lot of people will come to the Parliament and uh, update them on the the, the state of the, the status of the negotiations. Um, I, but I think that um, the member states will want to, and the Commission will want to keep uh, the negotiations as close to them as possible. Um, the, the the election of the and Brexit will will play no role whatsoever in the election of the the future uh, president of the Parliament. I, I very much doubt, uh, but but maybe I'm wrong here. Um, on Article 50, is it irre irreversible? The French have been very very clear about this. Um, Brexit means Brexit, so yes. It's irreversible. Um, but then again, once the negotiation starts, who knows? Who knows? But from, from at, at this stage, today, Article 50 is irreversible. Um, on, the, on the default nation, how much influence, etc., uh, at least from a French point of view, absolutely none. Um, France doesn't want the UK to split up, but mostly uh, because it would impact the Franco-British cooperation, the strategic, uh, the, the, on, on the defense side, because it would weaken the UK. But, uh, but it, when it comes to Brexit, uh, wouldn't have too much of an influence. Um, on, the, on, the, on the EU budget, it, could, could it be a, a way to, I mean, pay your way into the single market? It's part of, I, I suppose it's part of the negotiations. Uh, it's, again, it's, it's impossible to set the stage. The French would say no right now. But um, but in in, in, a, in a year time, I don't know. I don't know at all. Okay. Um, on John's question about the budget, yeah, I mean, I think I think all of the four countries would be very open to a situation where Britain paid in for access uh, for things like that, and that was sort of what I was trying to get at earlier. You know, they're looking for concessions to Britain wherever they can get them. But sort of counterfactually, I actually think that the polls have been quite sanguine about about the budget decreasing. I mean, they they've got a lion's share of the money up to twenty twenty. And they've kind of already accepted they wouldn't get that, that same amount again after 2020. And they're already restructuring their economy uh, at the moment in, in quite drastic ways, actually, to try to, to, to get around that um, uh, and try to make sure that more of their growth is domestically driven uh, in the future. So I think they're actually, I think a smaller budget is less of a negotiating tactic than, than Britain maybe thinks uh, the, uh, at the moment. And, and, um, but because of the way Poland has reacted. Uh, on the devolved nations, I don't think Poland has even considered that, uh, or any of the other countries, to be honest. Um, on um, 
on, on council parliament, I, I think all of the V4 countries believe, uh, possibly with the exception of the Czech Republic, that um, it should be national governments that do most of the negotiating, and the council should have almost complete control over it. Uh, the Poles have a terrible relationship with the Commission at the moment, and there's, there's a lot of scepticism towards Parliament uh, in, in, in Fischer-Grant. They, they just don't really think it, it, it should have much of a role and the national governments should be leading it. If they could do it bilaterally, I'm sure they'd actually prefer that. that but what an interesting point here is that, um, up until about three, two or three years ago, really, um, Germany used to kind of hold the whip hand of Visegrad um, through the Merkel-Tusk relationship. It was very, very, very close. The other three countries knew which side the bread was buttered. And also Orban used to go off on his rants, and then essentially Merkel would call him up as the head of the EPP and say, you know, get back in line, remember whose club you're in, and he would, inevitably. That is starting to fray. Germany is starting to have much, much less control over what the V4 countries say and do. You're seeing it with Russia sanctions to a certain extent that they all still vote, but they the pressure not to not to not to continue them is growing. And I think Germany, in a way, has lost that that real grip over those four countries and, and, and the way it can control them. Um, and on the point about that British bankers saying it's just fine, um, are you sure they're British bankers or were they Polish ministers? Because you, <laughs> <laughs> you hear the same in Warsaw. Everything's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. You know, they are all gonna buy stuff and they're all gonna keep selling stuff and it's all gonna be. Fine, so I think there's a, there's a lot of that same sort of, we'll be fine uh, in, in Warsaw too. Yeah, I mean, you can share my problem. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, okay, uh, let me start with the budget question. Um, I, I, you know, for the official negotiation, negotiation position, definitely not a declared thing, but obviously in the end there, there will be a deal. I think it's more interesting to watch how Germany positions itself on the EU budget as such, not necessarily on the deal with the UK. And I believe that we will see a new initiative, uh, sort of this better spending initiative, which Germany has, has engaged in over the past budget rounds. Um, and I believe there will be an attempt to review um, how money is spent, um, which obviously, I mean, if, if, if several Eastern Europeans change their position, that's an interesting thing, um, obviously, because if you look at who was among those countries that obstructed change in the past. I think Poland was one of the, the candidates here, um, as was France. So, so this will be interesting. The other interesting thing, which has a Brexit dimension, is that uh, sort of debate that has been popping up for a few days now on creating um, a defense fund. So essentially, if we move towards a situation where uh, we create new funding instruments <coughs> for specific policy areas, that would be a way to associate the UK. And it would just strengthen my point on that we will look at more differentiation, if it even goes as far as discussing the funding sources, which then wouldn't be uh, through the EU budget, but, but maybe sort of attached to it, but, but opening uh, the door to having uh, non-members maybe associated. I think that's an interesting thing to watch. Um, there may be dynamics here. Um, I did want to briefly comment, because I forgot beforehand, uh, the question of the German defense budget. Um, Steve Allen asked that question, I simply forgot. So it's true, Germany's defense budget is at about 1.2%. Uh, the year-on-year -year increase uh, from 2016 to 2017 is 6%, if you only look at defense budgets. So from a sort of internal German perspective, there is an effort being made. If you then measure it against the GDP, given GDP growth and everything, it's, it, it doesn't show. Oh, I mean, to show us sort of uh, behind the, the comma. Um, so that's that's uh, that's important to see that there are different perceptions here. Um, but 
there is a serious debate how Germany can meet the, the 2% goal in 2020, which is the framework that the NATO summit uh, in Wales set out last year. So, so that's, that's <coughs> the dynamics, but I think the belief in Berlin is, is, is broadly that even if we met the goal, uh, not only the Germans but also other EU countries, that wouldn't solve the problems of our uh, capabilities. So a lot of political effort, in my view, will be put into the question, how do we pool and share, how do we go about procurement in the EU in a different way, obviously touching on deep issues of sovereignty, um, and some see it as an excuse if the German engage the Germans engage in that debate that they want to sort of uh, draw attention away from the nominal goal of two percent. But I do believe, unless we do both, I mean, we won't move into a better place, and we won't be a more serious partner for for the United States. Stephen, um, just on first of all, on, on the role of the European uh, Parliament in all this, I mean, I. I don't think much should underestimate uh, this because it is the Commission who will be conducting the negotiations and the Commission live in fear of the European Parliament and the European Parliament is uh, exercising its muscles. The next, uh, I don't know who the next President of the European Parliament will be except that it seems to be, it could be anybody as long as it's a German. Uh, and uh, the whole, that whole issue does of course raise, because that means that uh, Donald Tusk's position he has to be renewed, he's going to be renewed as President of the of the council, that all that all that stuff will be playing uh, uh, as well. On the trade advantage disadvantage point, I mean the the, the actual imbalance in terms of uh, uh, our trade with the rest of the EU uh, should speak for should speak for itself. And apart from anything else, in political terms, people are going around saying, "Oh well, you know, of course, you know, we're, we've got the upper hand, and everybody will fall into line." Are idiots, because if at the end of the day we are going to get uh, a transition period which allows uh, tariff-free trade to continue pending the negotiation by us as a third country of a reasonable free trade agreement. That depends massively on political will because the politics could trump the economics. At the end of the day, if you have a, a reasonably um, uh, civilized uh, negotiation, maybe everybody will see that actually the effect on the EU economy of the disruption of trade that would result in terms of Britain falling off uh, a cliff at the end of two years isn't a good thing, but it's touch and go. And we've got to, we have to kind of work for that. Um, as for um, uh, looking into the uh, abyss, well, I'm, I'm, you know, as somebody who, who believes that actually the British interest is in Brexit being reversed, I think, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, I'm, I'm strongly supportive of people like John Major and Tony Blair who are trying to pull on the other end of the, uh, on the, other end of the road. Um, and I think that should be part of our, should be part of our uh, politics, even though at the moment uh, it doesn't look like the, um, the likely outcome, which is why you know, all our discussion is focused on how do we manage this process so that uh, uh, a departure, which will undoubtedly be painful for us and to an extent for our partners, is at least managed in a workable way. Okay, uh, so if you take the microphone, there's a lady right at the back who put her hand up. Um, she can take the microphone right at the back. Oh, well, it, well, it starts off in marriage. There was another lady, I think, at the back. Maybe, I, maybe she's gone. Okay, but we'll start off with Mary Jeffsky, then the gentleman with glasses. Sorry, but we've said somebody else's uh, turn. Um, I want to ask about the euro. Um, and it's been for Daniela and for Henry. 
Richard Penner from Bristol Marsteller. Um, I'm interested in the thinking in continental capital, capitals about how economic policy might change without the weight of the UK in the Council and Parliament. Um, I'm particularly interested in whether those structural economic reforms that um, are happening in the European Eurozone periphery will continue apace whether Ireland will come under uh, renewed pressure on its uh, tax rates, and whether Switzerland and uh, post-Brexit UK will find that uh, Fortress Europe is uh, better defended, shall we say, uh, than it has been in the past. Okay, Lord Tavern near the front. I want to come back to the question of transition, which Stephen Walls raised. It does seem to be very important because given the difficulties of getting an agreement in the short time space available for negotiation, it does seem to become a vital matter for Britain because if there's no transition agreement, no agreement, it is over the cliff. Uh, what, how has there been any discussion of this? Because again, on the face of it, it seems to be as difficult to get an agreement about transition as it is to get an agreement. Uh, my second question is, there was a mention about the fact that um, of the question of whether we could withdraw withdraw the uh, Article 50 application. Obviously, the odds are against our doing so at the moment, but I don't think it could be ruled out because circumstances may change in the public public opinion to a considerable extent. Um, surely, it's a British decision as to whether to go for art trigger Article 50, and it would be according to periods the uh, former head of the legal service for the European Council, um, it would also be a British decision, therefore, whether to change its intention. And on the face of it, there's nothing in law to stop people changing an intention. Has there been any discussion of this at all as well? And is the view of other nations that uh, reversal of the decision is impossible? The next hands Kunnani, but I would also say that John Kerr would like to comment on that last point. Uh, he'd be very welcome to. But uh, hands Kunnani. Hans Kunnani from GMF. I wanted to come back to um, Trump um, and this question that Daniela raised at the beginning about whether this changes the strategic context and could be a game changer in the Brexit negotiations, but also for the EU more broadly. I mean, if the doubt, the new doubt about the US security guarantee continues for the next couple of years, it seems to me very likely that, that it will. Um, and Europeans draw the conclusion, which they seem to be at the moment, that this means Europeans need to take their own security more seriously, take care of, take care of their own security. Um, even if, um, I mean, even if you move ahead with further um, integration within the EU on defence, um, and by the way, it does seem to me so that's thrown into doubt by the possibility, at least, of the becoming French president. It's not clear to me why you, you would want to actually go further, including sharing with France at this point. Uh, but even aside from that, it seems to me that um, the UK becomes, 
becomes more important. But a positive scenario that, that you suggested, Daniela, that, um, that what this does is this kind of takes the edge off the Brexit negotiations. People on both sides locate this in a bigger strategic context, realise they need the UK, and, and this, this kind of, um, I guess, lubricates the sort of negotiations. Isn't there a much more negative scenario? And there was a hint of this when the Polish Prime Minister came to Britain. Actually, what happens now, given this doubt about the security guarantee, is that military power becomes a factor in relations between EU member states, which is completely unprecedented, um, and I think a profound um, change. I'm not quite sure how that plays out in Brexit negotiations. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, particularly between Poland and Britain. Um, but isn't that a profound change in, in, in relations between EU member states? Okay, Rem Kortebeg, then Quentin Peel, then John Kerr. Um, thank you very much. This is an event called the 27 Views of the EU, or the EU 27. Um, let me give you a very short comment from one uh, capital that hasn't been mentioned. I just returned from The Hague. There is real concern in The Hague that the um, uh, 27th position is going to be determined by Berlin and Paris. They are very much on the line of the V4. They, they look at the EU 27 and see a changing voting pattern. They now need 13 countries yeah. to block, uh, uh, 13 smaller countries to block, uh, to, to, to create a, a, a blocking minority. Uh, they think the EU is now on a trajectory to be determined by Franco-German thinking. And they are worried. And so it's not just a V4 story. Mm -hmm. uh, they are very concerned also that the economics are um, uh, uh, secondary to the politics in Berlin and Paris. They want a transition deal, and they fear that Barnier and his team and uh, uh, the people they talk to in Berlin and Paris aren't aware of this. Um, but here's my question, and it follows up on what Hans was saying regarding Trump and Brexit. Uh, just following up to Hans's point, when you say that the relationship can be more strategic, does that mean, Daniela, that you think there is room for compromise? Uh, and if so, where? Quentin? Uh, thank you, Quentin Peel, Chatham has. Um, first, to go back to the budget, uh, there are more than a few people in this room who still bear the battle scars of Margaret Thatcher's budget remake negotiation, which wasn't quick. This is about net contributions, gross contributions, net recipients. And although I hear what Henry says about Poland, I can imagine that that view of saying, oh, to hell with the money, is not shared throughout Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and it's going to take a very long time to get the new balance worked out. Is there anybody on the panel who seriously believes that this two-year time scale, given the elections this year, given the fact we won't have a German government until December next year, uh, is actually going to be kept? And what are the consequences? It, can't be beyond the wit of man to have a, a unanimous decision to actually extend the period, but what are those consequences? And secondly, a very good and, 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 and well thought through report from the House of Lords Scrutiny Committee today on Ireland. Have any of the countries that you have observed represent and know best thought through what they are prepared to concede to allow for a special UK-Irish relationship? John Kerr. Triggering Stephen is quite right. The shortest the letter is, the better. The disaster to put a contentful letter into. Hold it close, John. A contentful letter into the French president's election. 
seems to be our plan. I don't know why we're going to trigger in March. I suspect it is something to do with the timing of the European Parliament election, but it seems to me to be a uniquely bad time. <laughs> As to Danny's question, I would say, uh, while I wish Stephen it should be the shortest possible letter, it should have been preceded by a white paper in which we go strong on the planting policies, we go strong on terrorism, we go strong on, uh, on foreign affairs. We, we explain what Mrs. May meant when she said, we are leaving the EU but not leaving Europe. That would be good atmosphere of the negotiation over there. It's also, in my view, long overdue. Uh, on reversibility, of course it's, it's reversible. Uh, it's uh, uh, in, in law. It's entirely reversible. Right up to that moment, two years on, if there has been no unanimity or extension, well, it's not. It wasn't invented, Charles, in order to act as a guillotine on the evil country trying to leave. It was to reassure the country trying to leave that it could not be tied to its oar, embroiled in an endless process of negotiation, and unable to get out, which was, of course, the principal Eurosceptic argument, that we are tied to our oars, we cannot escape. <coughs> I, I am not convinced that it is too short a period to negotiate a divorce. I think the divorce will be nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> I think that the key issue is the framework. Mm -hmm. uh, they will be required to take account of something. Nobody knows what the framework is going to be. I suspect the framework will be principally about planting policy. I suspect it will also lay down principles in relation to the single market and customs. Uh, but it seems to me that that is the area where the British should actually be putting forward proposals. I wouldn't do it on the, on the hard stuff. I would do it on the banking policy now. But that will be what they will discuss. That is more difficult than the divorce discussion. And whether that can be done in two years or not, I don't know. But uh, I don't know. Thank you. Uh, last in this round, Thomas Riley from Shell. Thank you very much, and thank you, panel, for such an interesting discussion. I was struck by something that Stephen said, and I would very much appreciate the views of the rest of the panel on actually the political relationships between uh, your capitals and uh, uh, London, if indeed, as Stephen suggests, the political relationship is so important. Okay, uh, that's a lot of points. Please don't answer them all, panellists, because I want to fit in one more round before we stop. Uh, let's start with Stephen this time. Um. Uh, on board to, to then a uh, point about uh, whether the idea of a transition has been discussed. I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I would be surprised if it's been discussed by British government representatives at any rate within the authority, because I don't think this is an issue that's yet resolved uh, within... British government. I mean, I thought it was interesting that David Davis was quoted last week as having told one of the banks that uh, uh, if he was if he was feeling really uh, generous to our partners, then we might allow some kind of transition. This seems to me to be a man who is recognizing that a transition is necessary, but don't actually say so, other than by turning the thing around in that way. That said, I mean, it is it is certainly being talked about uh, in uh, in Brussels, but I think at the moment there is. There is quite a divide between thinking within the council secretariat, uh, which is kind of detailed and granular, 
um, and thinking within the uh, within the European Commission. And I suspect that that will go on being the case for uh, for uh, for quite some time. Um, as to the idea of, the, uh, of an extension of the period of Quentin, I mean, I think at the moment the government's position uh, is is stated to be that this is going to, they're not going to seek an extension. Um, and again, at the moment, I guess the politics are that they do want they do want the actual process of leaving uh, to be completed before the next general election, assuming that uh, we go to a full term parliament rather than having an early election. Now, again, you know, the, the politics of that might uh, might change uh, if uh, the British people start to feel that the economic consequences uh, of our, our, our leaving are worse than they than they thought. Daniel. Thanks very much. Um, I'll start with the uh, with Hans Kunhani's question: military power becomes effective in the EU. Sort of the negative scenario of what I sketched. Um, well, first of all, I would say that military power has always been effective in the country's position within the EU. Just take the Franco-German relationship, where sort of the the German role was mainly based on its economic power, while the French role was based on its foreign and security and defence. Power. So I think it, it has implicitly always been one factor among others. The question now is, does the military uh, element move to the forefront? Um, I don't know. I mean, we, we can imagine this happens, and it would. I think if, if we see it happening, um, an indicator for that would be how Germany positions itself and whether it realizes that that could be one more factor to actually have more say in certain policy areas. But I think it's for me it's too early to judge. Um, but, but I do believe it, it has always been there, though, though really in a very sort of complementary way, with some countries focusing on that and some others, Germany for obvious reasons historically, on, on other sort of uh, um, uh, basis for its power. Um, the, uh, the question on uh, the Netherlands and whether, or, or the, the, the comment Rem made on the Netherlands looking at, at the Franco-German relationship uh, with a lot of suspicion. I don't want to sort of calm those fears entirely, but I do want to put some realism to the analysis of the way the Franco-German relationship works at the moment. And I think it's, it's maybe overrated. And one of the reasons is that there are pretty fundamental divergences precisely on the economic issues and the thinking about how uh, even sort of from a governance perspective, but then also from a policy perspective, the Eurozone and the single market should move forward. So I, I was in Paris on Friday, and it really struck me that the debate is in a completely different place than in Berlin. And it is the very traditional differences how, how people look at good economic policy, the right institutions to govern an economy, all this is still there. And we shouldn't push that aside as something that would easily be overcome, even though there is this pressure which I mentioned that we do need to work on the functioning of the Eurozone. If we don't, it may actually fall apart. Although there's the sense of urgency, this is deeply rooted not only in economic beliefs, but if you look at the German case, also in constitutional constraints. So it's, it's a big thing to overcome. And at least from a Berlin perspective, uh, the, the Netherlands are always seen as an ally in this group of countries who think alike economically. And that brings me to the question on uh, on, on Eurozone ins and outs, obviously. Um, the Eurozone, um, in my view, if it is to hold, it needs to be deepened, yes. But Germany was always one of those countries who paid a lot of attention to managing the relationship with the non-Eurozone countries, simply because for Germany, the Eurozone is one thing that's important, but the single market is another hugely important thing. 
And that's why, obviously, uh, the UK uh, possibly leaving is a, 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 a game changer because the number of, of countries who will not be in the Eurozone and who will be in the single market as full EU members um, is, is shrinking. And Germany has always looked at Warsaw, at London in particular, and then obviously at the Scandinavian countries um, as, as partners in handling this relationship well. And it stood against Paris, in particular under the French EU presidency in two, 2008, when there was a strong push for stronger political integration, excluding those, those countries. And I think there is, again, there is a very fundamental interest here to make the, the keep the single market working, working properly. Um, yeah, I think for time reasons, I, I suppose I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll try to be very quick. Um, on the political relationship, I mean, this, as I said before, London and Warsaw, I think, closer today than they were uh, a year ago. Um, that's that's mainly because of... of, of, of uh, I, I want to make the point very clear here. Law and justice, uh, in fact, all of the ruling parties in the central Europe, none of them want to leave the EU. I mean, they are, they, are, they are parties that want to massively reform the EU, but not leave it. And so Britain is a very useful tool in that process. Of course, also remember, law and justice and the Conservatives sit together in the European Parliament. They've always sort of seen themselves as uh, uh, friends. Um, and they're really sort of the only two major parties in that group. Quentin, you make, you make a very good point. I, I don't think the polls will sort of say, don't worry about the money. They will, of course, haggle for every last naughty they can get. Um, and also, it's, it's much, it, there's, there's also countries down the line that now think it's their turn. Romania, Bulgaria, countries that say, well, you know, these guys had the lion's share of the last uh, budget we want uh, on that. I think what the polls would like is a, and we use tapering a lot with ECB and the Fed, but that sort of thing. Everyone wants to know at which speed these funds are going to slowly uh, uh, be, be withdrawn. You only have to look at Hungary's, I think it was Q2 GDP number, about half a percent lower than what the market thought, simply because money was coming out of Brussels slower. It can have that much of an impact on GDP growth, half a percent of GDP growth in a quarter. Um, on defence, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said before, I, I didn't actually know the 2% Germany thing in 2020. I mean, that, that I'm sure that's a goal. The, the government has got subscribe to a goal. Yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone has. We'll also will be watching that goal with them. <laughs> with them. Uh, and and they, they make it very clear every time there are European troops in Poland, these are NATO troops. They are not European troops. And so there's a real sense here that America and Britain will be the core of this defence, whatever, whatever happens in Germany. But the, the, most, the one I really want to talk about is the Eurozone point. Yeah, Poland, I mean, I wouldn't, it's, it's off the table. There is no discussion in Poland about joining the Euro. No party thinks it's, it's, it's going to win many votes, and I don't think it's going to win at any point. What's quite amusing is Poland quite, quite like the fact that there could be two separate, a core and an outsider group, and they will be in the outsider group. In fact, you can see in Warsaw this sense that they're now the leaders of the Euro out if Britain leaves. Of course, they're the leaders of a, an army that's had half of its troops leave, but they're still now the biggest country in terms of in terms of power, um, the Czechs are completely the opposite, as I said before. They are very concerned about what this might mean. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, the Czech Republic meets all the criteria for entering. It's about a, a political decision. Nobody really knows Mr. Babish's position. He may well be prime minister next year. He's, he's flipping around a lot. And they, they, they could be quite a quick entry from the Czechs if they want to. They, they're about to remove the peg on their, on their currency at the moment in the next 12 months or so. So it's looking like the Czech Republic could be preparing for an early entry. In fact, some officials in Prague tell me they quite like that. Um, and, and for me, Hungary is a really interesting one because rhetoric-wise, they are in line with the polls. But again, as I said before, Orban and Merkel have a, have a special understanding. And that will be a real test to see whether Hungary goes and is happy being in this sort of, if there is a sort of, two-speed Europe on the outside, really without many, many EU uh, rights and responsibilities and outside the Eurozone. Um, you know, 
actually in Warsaw, there are people who tell me we don't think the Hungarians are true Eurosceptics. We think they're going to balk when it comes to it. Like if they have a decision between us and the centre, they're going to go with the centre. I mean, let that sink in. There are people in Warsaw who think Orban like isn't going far enough. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll, I'll pick and choose um, as well uh, on the. <coughs> Maybe the, maybe maybe the question about structural reforms would it be reversed without the UK. I, I think the UK leaving has not much to not it doesn't really impact uh, structural reforms. This is a discussion that happens within the eurozone, and and the UK may be favorable to structural reforms, but this is a conversation that mostly EU uh, eurozone countries have. Uh, it may change because the the the. the the, um, the, the, the landscape, the economic landscape is changing, but it's not because the UK is leaving. The pressure on Ireland is interesting. I, I, I didn't think about that. I mean, first of all, um, we're talking about DJ competitions, so it's, a, it's, an, it's almost another member state. Uh, so obviously it will, it will continue to put pressure on, on Ireland. But there, there is a, a growing debate about corporate taxes. Um, and obviously Ireland and the UK were close allies on that, with, with a few other very small member states. But still, now uh, Ireland will be very, very much isolated on this debate. And France and Germany will be very strong on having a more harmonized uh, corporate tax regime within the EU. And that can, that can, put, a, that can put pressure on Ireland. Um, the deal on the transition, to my knowledge, it's, it's, the French are thinking about it, but not officially. Uh, reversal of Article 50, yes, sure, but the French would be very unhappy with that. Um, simply because it, it means that all the debates that, are, that, have been, that will have taken place in the meantime would be void. Uh, it has to start from scratch again. So the French would not be too happy if there was a reversal of Article 50. Um, on, on, um, on France and Germany, REM, uh, Actually, I agree with Daniela, the, the, the Franco-German relationship is very, very, uh, let's say, complicated. Um, but on Brexit, they may agree, uh, to a large extent. Maybe more than, uh, indeed, I'm, I'm sure that the Dutch may have concerns, legitimate concerns. Um, and, um, but the French and the, the French and the Germans have a fairly common line, at least today. It may change during the negotiations. Um, and on the, the, the question about the political relationship between uh, between the, the, the UK and our respective countries, so about France. There, there is one thing which is really interesting about the Franco-British dynamic. Um, it's that it's never been defined by the, by the European Union. Uh, so if you look at, a, if you look at the Frank, Fra Franco-British summit, uh, Franco, if you compare Franco-British summit declaration, Franco-Spanish, Franco-German, Franco-Italian, the, the EU is, is forefront for Italy, Spain and Germany. It's at the very end uh, in the Franco in the Franco UK declarations, uh, which means that the core of the Franco British cooperation is about defense, it's about internal security, and it's about trade. It's not about the EU. Um, so, uh, the, the, to a large extent, as long as the UK remains the UK, uh, France will consider the UK as an extremely important bilateral uh, ally <coughs> on, on in strategic terms. If Scotland were to I mean, if the UK were to split up, that may change the, the, entire, the entire picture. But at least for the time being, France considers that um, the UK is a, is a very important partner. I was at the Franco-British co uh, conference to, uh, on defense a, a couple of weeks ago, where you have all the, all the big shots on the French and, the, and the, the British side. And everyone agrees that Brexit or no Brexit, uh, the UK-British cooperation on defense is extremely fundamental to both countries' security.
Okay, we've got time for a few a few last questions. Two people caught my eye. Now's the last chance. To, okay, I think that's the third person. Firstly, John Henley from The Guardian, then Renaud Tillet from Policy Network. Thanks, yes. Um, I just like, there does seem to have been, like, sort of, of late, the last couple of weeks, uh, sort of increasing number of expressions of frustration in assorted European capitals uh, about the continuing kind of have you take and eat it while washed down with mental confidence Prosecco statements from British government ministers. So my question really is how how much damage has the British government done itself before the negotiations already start? What what what, what attitude will the EU twenty seven bring to the negotiations given the sort of continued impenetrability of the government strategy? Renner? Thank you. Um, I, I, I want to mention Switzerland, which hasn't been mentioned uh, so far, I think. Um, I mean, something quite interesting is happening because uh, Switzerland is trying to uh, push the, the EU legal, legal framework to its limits on free movement, <coughs> trying to re re renegotiate uh, something or at least make sure uh, a new system of national, hir national preference in hiring. Uh, is acceptable now. We hear that um, France, uh, Germany, and Italy are not very keen on the Swiss proposal, which is not yet on the table. Uh, the first reason is that there are obviously a lot of frontier workers, but the second reason might actually be Brexit, and they don't want to send any, any signal that actually something is is available to renegotiate. So, do, do you think uh, Brexit comes into the picture uh, on this uh, Swiss EU standoff? Okay, finally, Glenn Evans on the let my left side. Thank you very much. I'm a little bit worried that we are discussing this in, in the context of something like a bubble. I remember 1987, Professor Lawrence Friedman speaking in Brussels, saying there was never more dangerous a time than when alliances fall apart. He's talking about what And one of the things we've seen in the recent times is the revolt of the public against established elites um, going across a very broad front. I was very interested to hear Henry Coy talking about the fact that in among the Visegrad four, they are already part of government. And my question to the panel is, do you not anticipate there are going to be more and unpleasant surprises that are going to be more fundamentally destabilizing um, than the kind of issues that we've been discussing today? Um, we have, we've, we've got a number of elections coming up. France, Germany, Italy, we've seen already the reaction of the Italians. Can we make, can we continue to hold on to the kind of assumptions we've been talking about in this moment? Thank you for bringing the uh, bigger global perspective in at the end, Glenn. And let me just um, add, to, add to that before we return to our panelists. Um, I was in Washington last week. And the message I got talking to foreign policy experts, including those on the Republican Party, is the world order that we've known is changing. That you know, those of us who believe in multilateralism, openness, trade, international institutions, democracy promotion, humanitarian intervention need to wake up because this is not the world that Donald Trump believes in. He believes in none of those things. And so um, the question is then, what does that mean? If anything, this, this changed world order, what does that mean, if anything, for how we handle Brexit in Europe? Let's go in inverse order. Last comments, last 
just one or two brief words, please. Firstly, um, for, for you, Vivian. Uh, thank you. On the um, on the damage done before the negotiations even started, uh, some 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 damage. But uh, but the, the, uh, again, on the on, 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 on at the EU level, the the French have been have always had a fairly complicated relationship with the UK. I mean, I mean, remember the, the Nicolas Sarkozy telling David Cameron, uh, "You lost an opportunity to shut up." Uh, I mean, this is. I mean, this is. This is nothing new. Um, there is the political, the rhetoric, and then you have the, 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 the real negotiations. So a bit of damage, but not too much. The French are used to it. So, uh, um, on, um, on, on Bruno's question, uh, well, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I, I talked with a few Swiss recently, and, and they were very concerned about Brexit. Very concerned because they, feel, they fear that, indeed, uh, the Brexit negotiations could uh, play against um, against their hand uh, and could actually be detrimental to some very ad hoc status that they're trying to create. Um, the French the French will probably not move on that, and unfortunately for the Swiss, they're very small uh, and they're far less important than the UK. So they will be uh, they will be put um, on the on the, on the back burner for the time being. I I, I think uh, on the the unpleasant surprises, yes, I mean for sure. I mean there, there's. There's one thing, that I, I, I should have mentioned that. The French are not worried that the UK is leaving Europe. Um, because they're saying, well, the UK will still be a member of NATO. So when it comes to security and defense, the UK will still be around. Uh, obviously, our foreign policy are interdependent, uh, very, uh, very closely uh, interlinked. Um, so we'll still have a close relationship with the UK. So the world, the world will change, but the UK will not drift away from Europe uh, geographically. And our priorities are likely to remain fairly similar uh, in the years ahead. Maybe the UK will be less interested in North Africa uh, being outside the EU, but that's, that's something the French can live with. Um, but uh, for the French, it's really important to keep the UK fairly close to Europe, for instance, to keep the Europeans interested in Asia. Uh, because no, no country is interested from, from a strategic point of view uh, in Asia, outside the UK and France, because we have a few territories over there. Um, so, so yes, uh, things can change, obviously. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to predict, uh, but things can change. But for the French, the UK is not drifting away geographically from Europe. And the French want to keep a fairly close relationship, relationship with, the, with the UK from a strategic point of view because it's a good way also to pressure the other Europeans to keep, uh, to keep their eyes open to the world. Thank you. Henry? Yeah, I mean, on, on Julian's point there, I mean, that's, that's exactly the point here. This is, this is why Central Europe has reacted to Brexit, I think, a lot differently to maybe people would have thought they would have done and also what they would have done three years ago. I mean, in September, Jaroslav Kaczynski and Viktor Orban sat on stage and talked about a cultural counter-revolution in Europe being kicked off by Brexit. And two countries uh, in a region that stands perhaps to lose the most from a, a Brexit on Britain's terms are essentially allowing themselves to be talked into gunning for one because they see it as part of a wider movement of Euroscepticism, of mild nationalism, pulling power away from Brussels, or reversing this liberal tide that they believe has swept across the Europe in the form of, literally, structural funds, and in the form of Schengen, and in the form of Franco-German power over the Commission. Um, this is something that I can't stress hard enough. The, the, these countries believe they're on the right side of history, and that so does Brexit. And so there is an alliance and allegiance here between these points, which seems, at first glance, 
ridiculous, but actually could may well be quite a determining factor in the, the deal that, that Britain gets. Thanks very much. I'll start by answering the question on how much damage has been done to the relationships between London and, and, and other capitals. I think it's important to look at both image and, and interest. For the image, I mean, uh, the UK has had a terrific image in, in, in Germany for a long time, being seen as pragmatic, very smart, um, very good negotiators. And I think everything that has happened since the 23rd of June really, you know, kind of makes people question what's actually wrong in, in London. And I think it's, it's two things. It's first of all, not being able to figure out how, um, how the UK wants to go about the negotiation. We heard it all, the problem of figuring out the model that is being pursued. But then also this, this need to figure out for the UK itself what kind of model it is pursuing in socioeconomic terms and other ways. So really, yes, the, I think that disorientation is, is, is observed from, from Berlin's perspective and it's being taken very seriously because, as I said, the UK, whatever happens with the Brexit negotiations, is seen as a strategically important country. And that brings me to the interest piece. Um, yes, I would say quite some damage has been done, but at the end of the day, the interest is to have a stable, proactive Britain somewhere, even if not in the EU, of course within NATO and with close ties to the EU. And I think that will in the end prevail once all the uh, other questions have been figured out. I, I don't believe there will be any sense of, you know, whatever, revenge or looking back or something. I think it will be very pragmatic, at least from the Berlin perspective. Um, but having said all that, what I said initially is very important. Berlin is very keen not to create good examples that exiting the EU is actually uh, something one would want to follow. Um, so for the, the, the point you raised, uh, Charles, the world order, everything is changing. Yes, I mean, obviously, um, a lot is going to change under Donald Trump, but we don't know to what extent. And I think it's very important also thinking about what Europeans can do in this situation of unparalleled uncertainty is really to, to, to engage with the US and, and share certain views that giving up all of what we have built in terms of global order will actually run against the very hard interests of the US as well. And we can see evidence already that other actors are stepping into that perceived void that is being created. Just take the Chinese reaction to giving up TPP. And I think that's a strategic discussion we need to have, both in terms of sharing our views with the US, what damage they are in, in sort of inflicting on themselves, but also uh, for the European strategy, what we will be doing um, with this new situation, which is a, a very urgent thing to discuss. And again, that brings me to uh, the, the conclusions for Brexit. It, it really makes my point once again. If that is all true, if something is changing, uh, we shouldn't narrow the view on the relationship with the UK on EU issues only and on leaving only, but really building a strategic relationship for the time after Brexit. Thank you. Steve, last word. Um, I mean, I agree with, uh, with, uh, with, with Lynn. I mean, even if Gerd Wilders isn't the next Dutch Prime Minister, his power is going to continue to affect German politics. Uh, even if uh, Fillon is uh, elected. Um, the left will have voted uh, for him if, it's, if he's up against the pen for the similar reasons why the left voted for Chirac at the turn of the century. Uh, and if you remember, they said better to vote for a, for a crook than for a, than for a fascist, uh, which means that if Fillon comes to power, he will come to power with the reluctant votes of the left, which in terms of the reform process which he wants to initiate, 
that will make life uh, more complicated. Angela Merkel will return weaker. This may be not quite an election too far, as with coal, but it's, you know, she will return weaker. In the meantime, if Erdogan decided to turn on the tap again, she could be overwhelmed uh, between now and the, and the German uh, elections. But, so we, I mean, and frankly, uh, much, of, much of this is beyond uh, our control. Uh, if, though, at the end of the year's time, we, 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 don't, we have Fionn, we have Angela Merkel, we have uh, Ritter or somebody uh, similar, then we do, rather than, it seems to me, to accept that uh, the liberal consensus that we've built in Europe on the, on the uh, ruins of World War II should be swept aside, we have to work as Europeans and European leaders uh, to try and, uh, and preserve it and safeguard it, which is why we, we Brits, have to handle this whole negotiation so that at the end of the day, there is a strategic negotiation between heads of government, not the usual argy-bargy between the Commission and us and the European Parliament, etc., etc. It's a huge... I mean, of all the negotiations uh, that we've, we've conducted over the last 50 years with our European partners, this is by far away the most important, not just for us, but actually because of this wider context for Europe as a whole. Thank you very much, and thank you for everybody for taking part in such a rich discussion. I do think the, um, the, the information that's been aired today from panellists and those in the audience is of a very high quality. It shows how incredibly complex the political positions of the various European countries are. And I just hope that somebody in number 10 is aware of the kind of interesting, complex uh, views that, that we've heard around the tables today in this room. But I, we will do our best to pass on the message. Thanks, thanks to Simon Usherwood and his colleagues at UK and Changing Europe for helping this event happen. And thanks to all the panellists for coming and thanks to you for listening. Thank you very much.